Man, it still seems weird to me that Laura went with a yellow and blue Wolverine outfit. I mean, it's the iconic look. I don't know. I've always been partial to the brown and yellow. With or without the little teeth? The little teeth. The ones on the outfit he stole from Fang. During the Phoenix Saga? Oh, right, that one. Man, whatever happened to that guy anyway? Fang? Well, he got infected by and turned into a brood and then Wolverine killed him. Yeah, but he came back, didn't he? Wait, when? In the Wolverines, I think. I'm kind of hazy on the context. The Death of Wolverine spinoffs kind of blur together for me. Oh, right, right, yes. It turned out, um, what was it? Fang and Logan used to meet up and party and start bar fights. Wait, after Wolverine stole his clothes and stabbed him? Sure, I mean, Fang's a chill dude. He's not gonna let a little jumpsuit theft and murder get in the way of a good friendship. So he comes back to, what, investigate Logan's death? Nah, he's just there sort of to clean up, so rounds up a bunch of Logan's old enemies and then... Kills them? Takes them on individual adventures to learn valuable moral lessons. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 130 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome also to our guest this episode, Charles Soule. Charles, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. So you are writing the upcoming, as we record this, in progress as it's released, Death of X miniseries. That's true. Death of X, and then it's follow-up in Humans vs. X-Men, or IVX, as we call it around the office, uh, as well. So lots of X-Men stuff coming up. So there have been a lot of conspiracy theories floating around, honestly, for as long as I've been reading comics, but very intensely in the last couple of years, that Marvel is trying to kill the X-Men. And it seems to me that it's unlikely, but looking through your credits, I feel like we should ask, what about you personally? Yeah, I I am an X-Men killer, there's no doubt about it. Between, uh, you know, the, the big, the first big X-Men story I did was was certainly Death Wolverine, in which, I mean, this is a big spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it, but Wolverine dies. Um, <laughs> and he has remained dead. He's stayed dead ever since then. Uh, and then in the Wolverine series that I did, I mean, that was leading up to Secret Wars, so it's sort of, it doesn't count in the same way, but but a whole bunch of X-Men types died in that. And now we're, we're doing the Death of X miniseries. So there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, of X-Death, I guess, associated with my name. Charles Soule, Mm ex-assassin. But yeah, so I mean, I know you've done a great deal of Marvel work between like, you know, She-Hulk and Thunderbolts and all the Inhuman stuff. But it seems like with X-Men, it is specifically uh, focusing on all of these big, grand, tragic events. So is that your main experience with X-Men as a line? I mean, are you an X-Men reader coming into this? Or was it just sort of a, hey, Charles, come and join the X-Men and kill them all kind of thing? Well, I I don't know that it was phrased exactly that way. But I mean, I've I've been reading X-Men for... For ages, probably not as in as minute detail as you guys have, uh, because very few have, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've been reading it for a long time, right? So that's, you know, probably my first stuff was Claremont Byrne a long time, like long enough ago that I sort of wasn't aware of, of it was just great comics at the time. And then I, I was out of it for a little while and came back in with uh, with Grant Morrison and, and Quietly's Run. And then, yeah, you know, that led right into Whedon and, and Cassidy. And then sort of since then, I've been reading a whole bunch of it just it, it, at first kind of as a fan and now professionally since it's my job, which is an amazing thing. So, so I've liked all kinds of X stories and, and honestly death and the X-Men, they go together like chocolate and peanut butter, whatever you want to say. Like these stories that are happening now are certainly not the first time X-Men have, have croaked um, going all the way back to Phoenix saga and before. So I think that it's just a sort of a coincidence that I happen to, you know, the big X stories that I've done so far have been uh, kind of tragedy stuff, but we'll see what happens in the future. I love the X-Men and certainly 
you know, I think there's a lot of heroic stories about them I could tell, too. I'm glad you brought up the Phoenix Saga, because one of the biggest questions I have for you, you know, regarding Death of Wolverine and Death of X, in a universe where readers sort of assume death to be a revolving door, how do you give it narrative weight? How do you make sure that it sticks or at least that it has the impact that you want it to? Right. I think that's a fantastic question. Uh, and it's something that I spent a lot of time on first with Death of Wolverine and now with Death of X and, and sort of every time that I have to address these questions. I think it doesn't necessarily matter so much the revolving door thing, as long as what you do feels extremely earned and it feels like it, it does honor to the character in a way that that doesn't feel like it. So it doesn't feel like an afterthought. It feels like there's a they're going to rest for a while in a good way. It's sort of like if you're, you know, you're, you're going off to summer vacation or you're going off to, to sort of to leave for a while, but maybe you'll be back someday. Like as long as the goodbye is good enough and strong enough, it, it works. So that is that's how I treated Death of Wolverine. I wanted to make sure that it was a, an ending that sort of did honor. I, I keep saying did honor to, but it's more like um, was respectful of all the different ways that that character has been seen and, and used and written and enjoyed over the his 40 year history. I wanted to make sure that it, it felt like one of those great Wolverine stories to the extent that I could do it. And then certainly having Steve McNiven draw it uh, helped immensely with that. Yeah. And I feel like that's actually something that worked really well. One of the things we try to do for interviews is just sort of reread a lot of the material from the people we'll be talking to. So I've read, I think, Death of Wolverine and Weapon X Project and the stuff you wrote in Logan Legacy all in like the last week. Didn't make it through okay. Wolverine's a second time, but I, I did read it a while ago. And I think that works because, I mean, you look at the path that Wolverine has taken over the past many, many years and all the stuff with him trying to reconcile his role you know, leading like X-Force as a strike team, sort of looking at that darker side of himself, and then also becoming a teacher at the Jean Grey School and trying to leave a better legacy in the world. Like, it really felt like he was sort of working on what is Logan going to mean to the world once he's gone? Like, he was almost preparing to be done. And so when Wolverine does finally, you know, get coded in adamantium and, and die up until even the present, like, that felt earned. I think that's, or, or you mentioned the word earned, and I think that's exactly what came through. Right. Well, I think the, you know, that's really it. I went into it knowing that not everybody was going to like that ending that, the, you know, I, there's the what I call the thousand ninja theory, which is that the only way Wolverine should have been, should have died was in an epic, gigantic battle bigger than than he's ever been in before with everything at stake and all, all of that. And I <laughs> almost immediately rejected that idea from the start because it just felt like to me anyway, it felt like if he if he died in a battle like that. Uh, even if he beat everybody, even if, if all of his, his victims were vanquished one way or another and he saved the world, then it would be like a battle we've seen him fight a billion times before, but he won every other time. So what makes this one different? It just means he lost this time, essentially. Even if he technically won the battle, he still would have lost. So it didn't seem like that was the way to go. And so that's why I decided to do something that I, I thought was a little bit more you know, poetic, hopefully, uh, the idea that what's what started him sort of ended him. Uh, his his end was his beginning. Uh, and it and it I really did want to make it feel like he was putting aside old business, like trying to, you know, recognizing that maybe his time was drawing short and wanting to to go out in a good way, whatever that meant for him. So as you mentioned, Death of Wolverine is rooted very, very much in Wolverine's identity and history and the characters, the places, the motifs that made him what he was, defined him. Death of X, on the other hand, is tied very closely to a large universe event. And I'm wondering, looking at it you know, from the title and also from what we've seen of the first issue so far, to what extent is it a Cyclops story versus a, you know, Inhumans Marvel Universe story? Uh, I think it's I do, it is both for sure, but it is absolutely a Cyclops and even a Cyclops Emma story. Like, I think they are 
what I would say are the emotional core of Death of X, uh, and there are a couple that I've loved. I've loved writing. Every time I get a chance to write Emma at all is a thrill. Uh, and, and same with Cyclops. This is my first time really writing him, uh, as well as some of the other characters that I've gotten to play with a little bit. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with some of them, but certainly Emma and Scott, as a couple doing what they're doing, this, is, this has been kind of my first shot. So, you know, I think they're, they're at the heart of the whole thing. You know, you guys have, have taken a look at it. And by the time this airs, you'll have, everyone will hopefully have taken a look at it. So um, if that's where your instincts are leading you, I don't think that's, that's off base. Yeah, it's actually been really refreshing after so many months in the current, like, extraordinary, all-new, <clears throat> uncanny era to go back to these characters we haven't seen in so long. Because I know you mentioned that you uh, sort of came back to the X-Men in the uh, Morrison and then Whedon era. And Scott, right. Scott Nemmerich is the core of that. And, I mean, for me, the X-Line has been about largely them for so, so long. So it almost feels a little like coming home, just in time to burn down that home. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think the X-Men stories, not not always, not in every case, but the X-Men stories tend to be, some of the ones that really stick in your mind are the ones where, where it is one of these extinction level events, one of these crisis points where the fate of mutant kind is at stake. And to the extent, you know, I, I, you know, I did my homework when I was getting ready to write this and went through a lot of, of X stories. And, and it's just, it's, it's amazing how often the X-Men are, again, you guys probably know as well as anybody, how often they are at the, at death's door. Um, and, and so you know, it, the trick with something like this is you don't want it to make it feel familiar. You don't want to, by now, anybody who's reading X-Men stories, who has been reading X-Men stories as a fan, is a, is aware of that trope of, of the X-Men in, in Facing Extinction, <clears throat> which I think is part of what they what they are. It's part of a core of their, their characters, part of a core of what, almost what makes them tick. So that, it's almost a given at this point. And, but the, just like with Wolverine, I mean, you want to, you want to do it in such a way that it feels like, it's not so much about the extinction event because we've seen that many times and it's it's not really and we know that they survived death of x at least some of them do because it's set 8 months ago and we've seen x-men active in the in the marvel universe since then so death of x is obviously not not a literal title in i mean it may or may not be literal for some of them but it's it's certainly not literal for the x-men and so the x-men survive at least the first extinction event and then it's whether you know so it's it's how you how you treat it, how you, the characters you choose to, to show reacting to it, how they approach it, how they think about it, uh, and the choices they make with respect to it. That's how you make them, them different and cool. And, and, you know, we've seen Emma and Scott dealing with this before too, but this one is, I don't know. I just think it sounds, or for me, it feels, it feels fresh and cool and interesting because the core of it is the Emma Scott thing, the, the relationship between them and how they as a couple are dealing with this and facing it. It's pretty neat, I think. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm liking what I what I've seen so far as, as much as I definitely raised my fist to the sky and yelled no when we did get our, our first big <laughs> casualty in this book. Right, right. <laughs> So you were talking about, you know, Death of X as a prequel. It takes place during this eight-month gap. And that kind of got me thinking about parallels between the structures of what you did in Death of Wolverine and what seems to be going on in Death of X. Because in Death of Wolverine, you went from the Death of Wolverine miniseries to then Logan Legacy and the Weapon X Project to then Wolverine, sort of almost a trilogy. And it looks like Death of X is doing the same thing. You mentioned Inhumans versus X-Men, and then I think also Resurrection has been mentioned, if not detailed. So is that a deliberate sort of trilogy structure, or is that just sort of a coincidence the way that's turning out? Also, as a um, follow-up, how do you pronounce Resurrection? <laughs> I, I, that sounds good to me. I think you nailed it. As far as a trilogy structure, trilogies just make a lot of sense, right? You know, they they make sense in a lot of different mediums, from novels to films to, to comics. And so I, I don't think there's any... I don't think there isn't a plan to like sort of mirror Death of Wolverine with these with these three stories here, but 
Um, I think we we really did like the idea in particular of bookending uh, with the eight months ago and then sort of the idea that there's been this Cold War in, in the Marvel Universe for eight months since the events of Death of X with the mutants and the Inhumans uh, very much, very, very tense with each other. Uh, they're not actively fighting, but there's a lot of tension and, and it's clear really to both sides that at some point this is going to erupt again. And it's, you know, the, I think the the concern on, on both sides, if we can talk about these characters like real people a little bit, is that please. Uh, they know that, you know, Medusa and Black Bolt uh, and the other leaders of the Inhuman Nation, so you've got Ohura and Crystal and kind of the Royals, uh, as well as the leaders of the Mutant Nation or, or group, whatever you want to call them. But that, I think, also, just to sort of digress for a moment, that is a is a real difference in the way that we're writing the Inhumans versus the X-Men. The, the X-Men are a loose coalition of you know, um, they're not exactly guerrilla fighters, but that's sort of how I see it. Like they're not, they don't have a country to rally behind. They're people whose, whose interests align from time to time, extremely powerful people who've been through a lot, who, some of whom are trying to teach future generations, others of whom are, have very different agendas from, you know, just fighting people to being criminals to, you know, all kinds of stuff. There's, there's good ones, bad ones, but they're not all the same. Whereas the Inhumans, at least theoretically are united under one sort of national banner, uh, Nevertheless, there are still a lot of outliers. There's other there's other inhuman countries, so to speak, or, or communities. Um, there are there are inhuman villains like Lash, Maximus, who who might do things their own way as well. So the point is that during the Cold War, both sides the are aware that at any point one of those outlier factions might just be like, forget this and and move on their own. And so I think they're both waiting that the leaders sort of the good guy leaders are on both sides are just waiting for that flashpoint, that match to flare up again. And then who knows what's going to happen, which has given a ni- really nice engine to the both the Inhuman and the mutant stories in between Death of X and what will be IVX. But uh, I guess we're still just talking about Death of X now. So Yeah, although what you mentioned, that's sort of a waiting for that flashpoint, waiting for, you know, some other faction to just screw things up. That actually reminds me a little bit of what we've seen in uh, Civil War II X-Men with Magneto's faction, because you definitely have, you know, the mutants are are far from a united front, as the Inhumans are as well. So I like the idea of all these little bits and pieces bubbling up and being tamped down, but raising the tension level a little bit more each time. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it. I've been writing Inhumans now for over three years, and so one of the real challenges and joys of it for me has been been that they are... uh, they are so diverse that there's so many different characters and so many different points of view. And it, it hopefully feels like a real kind of public. Actually, now that I think about these, you guys probably, you never read Inhumans because why would you? You have the X-Men there to keep you happy. But, <laughs> um, take my word for it. The Inhumans are a very complex group. And so it's been interesting for me to write it uh, really, really hard, but rewarding as well. And so, you know, getting to do it with the X-Men. I mean, I did it, I think, with Wolverines. And just anytime you get these huge casts with a lot of whom who have a long history that have, that have taken them to a lot of different places, it's very... It's a real workout as a writer, but you can get some really neat stuff out of it. So actually, that's a question I want to bring up because we haven't read a ton of Inhumans. We definitely don't have that history and that that level of investment in them as a group that we do in the X titles. And when we're following, you know, the million X books out, choosing what to add becomes sort of a matter of complex math and time. So here's a question from us, but also that we've heard from a number of our listeners and not been able to answer which is for X readers, what are the things that should be compelling us to make this jump to crack the Inhumans books and start looking at those guys, not necessarily as a substitute for the X-Men, but what are the bridges? What are the connecting points? Oh, so what are the stories that I would recommend people read before they read or Death of X or IVX? Or Or if I'm coming in primarily as an X fan, why should I check out Inhumans? You know, this stuff, whenever I get this question, I think it's interesting because as a reader of comics, as a reader particularly of a lot of comics, like 
thousands of comments over the years, just like you guys have. The one thing I always search for, and that is very difficult to find, is good comics, right? Like they're mm-hmm. not all great. And I, I, you know, that's Marvel, DC, you know, every other company, every other publisher, everything. They're, you know, really good comics are hard to find. I mean, there's a lot of comics, but they're not all great, right? Mm-hmm. You guys may agree with me, maybe not. I don't know. No, absolutely. absolutely. There is, yeah. I think, as much variation as in any other medium, just in terms sure. of quality spread. So there's a, there's a lot of dross, right? And so separating the, the wheat from the chaff can be tough. And so a lot of people really do like the Inhumans books. I think they're great. I think I've I've done, you know, done some of my best work on some of it, particularly the first Uncanny work, the arc with Steve McNiven, where they fight Kang and travel through time and stuff like that. The the whole Inhumans sort of big series that I did before Secret Wars with Brad Stegman and Joe Maggiorero was great. Like there's, I guess my, what I'm getting at is there's, there's a lot of really good comics there. And I think that should be the reason you should check it out above all else. I mean, the Inhumans are cool regardless. Black Bolt, Medusa, they're cool characters. The new characters are all cool. Reader, Frank McGee, they're neat. So that I think should be the primary motivating factor. Anything else, like, I, I don't know. I mean, if you like cool superhero stuff, that's what the Inhumans are. Yeah. And that makes a great deal of sense. Cause I mean, when it comes down to it, like the X books are the books that we focused on. I mean, I think largely because it's what we grew up with and just sort of ended up hyper-focusing. Well, and there's but, so much of it and there's consistently been so much of it. But I mean, you know, in terms of quality, quality is quality. And like, I look at our poll list and you know, it's, it's centrally X-Men, but certainly not entirely. But that does actually make me think of something that keeps coming up among uh, certainly X fans. I'm not sure if there's the same thing on the side of Inhumans fans, but especially since the Inhumans mutant conflict became a thing plot wise and given you know, the continual conspiracy theories about Marvel doing their best to suppress the X-Men, perhaps even in favor of the Inhumans. Like, it's so strange because we have fans who are almost acting like, I don't know, like sports fans in some ways. They're playing playing Marvel versus DC within the Marvel line. And it's weird because in the same way, they're just, they're not remotely comparable. They lend themselves to different types of stories, different Mm -hmm. narratives. They've got very, very different histories, both within the Marvel universe and, you know, of the books themselves. And the idea of them as an either-or conflict seems deeply bizarre to me from either a publishing or a reading angle. I could not agree with that more. Uh, it seems like, I, but you know, it also feels very comics to me, right? Like comics fans, and and I have been there, and I've done this. You know, you you look for reasons to, to to have a team. You know, it is like sports fans. You know, and and if people want to be on the mutants teams, mutants need a rival, and uh, if the Inhumans are are going to be the rival, that's you know, it's fine. I just the only thing that would be a shame is if people are are missing good comics because. You know, it's one thing to read X books and not like them and then move away from them. It's another thing to just say X-Men suck because I love the Inhumans or vice versa. So um, I guess my my suggestion would be to try everything and decide what's actually good for yourself before you make blanket statements about, you know, what you're going to read and not read. But I don't know who will actually do that. We'll see. Speaking of good comics, we've been talking a lot about character death and you've done a lot of, you know, intense and very good writing of that and are continuing to do so. What are your touchstones for the best deaths in comics, the things that you're trying to match or meet in terms of quality and impact? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, and, and I think that when you look at something like this, it's uh, it really goes back to what I was talking about before, about how it has to feel earned. It shouldn't feel like a stunt for for numbers, even if it is a stunt for numbers or, you know, something like a publishing event. It should hopefully feel more like a character event, like an event, uh, the event in the character's life. That, that their life has brought them to. So the choices that you, we've seen them make over the last 10, 20, 40, 50, 60 years have brought them to this point, and this death is, is a culmination of those things. Uh, that, is, that is my first question when I, when I look at a death I'm going to write or, or, well, a major death anyway. I mean, sometimes you do it for shock value. Like, I've killed, I mean, I've killed a bunch of Inhumans, too, like in, in the Inhuman series and, and after a bunch of them croaked. Uh, 
but, <laughs> but the, as far as ones that have touched me, let's see, that's actually, that's a great question. I mean, I think, so this isn't necessarily a superhero thing, but I think the death of Marv in, uh, in Sin City, uh, when Frank Miller wrote it was, was really good. Oh yeah. Perfectly yeah. done in character when he's in that electric chair and then they, they have to try him three times or whatever it is before he'll go. And mm-hmm. I think that when I was a, when I was a lot younger, the, the death of Superman, which it, when viewed through a modern lens, I it's 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 a very different event than it was back then. But at the time, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was uh, I was I was all all in on the death and rebirth of Superman. I I couldn't wait to find out which one of those four Superman was Superman, and then it turned out none of them were Superman, and like it was crazy. Superman had a mullet now. It was it was amazing <laughs> stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one hit me pretty hard. At the time, like again, I when I, I reread it recently, and it was when I did the Doomed miniseries at DC to, to sort of look at the Doomsday stuff again, and it's it's different through a kind of having been through the superhero ringer. I mean, the breaking of the bat, but that's not exactly what you're talking about. The I mean, he didn't die, but in a way, he he sort of did when Azrael broke his back and, and Nightfall and all that stuff. Well, that was pretty. That was pretty big. Um, and I think a big in, character bit in superhero comics. I mean, that almost can be a comparable thing. Like when you know that death is not necessarily going to be permanent for many of these characters. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not sure that we've officially seen uncle Ben, but he's one of the few, you know, having a major life changing event and having a character die. Both of those are basically long-term setbacks that ideally, like you said, are going to be earned. They're going to come organically from the past of the character and they're going to lead to some kind of an interesting future that feels like, you know, a natural direction, not just a stunt. And I think, you know, all those things certainly especially in the time when they were happening before, you know, we saw more and more and more examples of it totally qualified. Yeah. I, I, and another one that's, that strikes me too, which is appropriate for this podcast is, um, uh, is Xavier's death in AVX, uh, when, when Cyclops blasted him to oblivion. Um, I guess I just didn't see it coming. Uh, and I ended up, I read that event, uh, as part of a larger chunk of X-Men research. I was, I was focused elsewhere when it came out. So I, I didn't, I didn't actually read it that closely when it happened. So it kind of took me by surprise and it's, I don't know. It's interesting just to have this like Cyclops path, which I don't know if that's where we're going as the discussion goes in general, but I think Cyclops path is, is fascinating and has really taken into some, some very interesting places. And the fact that, that, that you have the kind of grown up Cyclops or the, the mature Cyclops and, and as well as his younger counterpart, both running around the Marvel universe at the same time is, is really an amazing thing. And I give Bendis uh, a lot of credit for, I mean, he, he comes up with great ideas all the time, like really brilliant, game-changing ideas but that one i think has been the amount of story that you can get out of something like that where you have a an older version who has who has gone down a, a dark path you know i guess we've sort of seen that before but the idea of bringing in the the young version to kind of look at what's happened to his idealism is just fascinating to me i want to build on that and actually um talk more about sort of your sense of cyclops's path and who he is as a character and what's brought him to that point by the beginning of death of x there's so many things right i mean his his family history is kind of messed up um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm sure you guys have, I don't even know how you would uh, explain. I know that's what the show's called, but I, I'm sure you spent a lot of time trying to explain that. So Cyclops, he has a very convoluted history, convoluted family history, convoluted, you know, history in terms of his position with the X-Men. Sometimes he's led it. Sometimes he's, you know, we, we've seen him kind of grow up with this group in a way that comics characters aren't always kind of allowed to do. Um, it feels like we we really have seen him grow and change and mature and have a lot of lot of things happen to him. I mean, he's seen he's seen Gene dies, you know, come back. He's been Gene, sort of, if you want to call it that. In, in AVX, he's you know he's become a revolutionary. I, there's there's he's become everything that he 
he thought he wouldn't probably, or that Xavier hoped he wouldn't, but it all feels right to him. It feels like he hasn't had a choice. And, and I'm not sure that he would even necessarily make different choices if he had the opportunity to do it. The nice thing is that we're, again, we're getting to see him making possibly different choices with the young version running around, which is just really neat. I can't, can't say enough about how cool I think that is. Yeah. Well, um, and I think you hit the nail on the head as far as the fact that he wouldn't take those choices back. Like that's something we saw with Wolverine leading up to his death, you know, the position he was in was a natural one based on the decisions he's made and based on sort of the things he's seen with Cyclops. I think especially the becoming a revolutionary, the becoming more hardline, trying to walk it back and having to do it again. Like it just feels right. It fits. It feels so earned. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's one of those things where like, I think I, I know people or I've, I've, you know, I think we've, maybe we've met people, maybe we haven't people. I, I think I, I have who create an identity for themselves and then that identity takes control of them in a way that they didn't anticipate. And it becomes an identity that they can't really shake. Um, I think you could, you know, in this, in Cyclops case, he becomes a, a revolutionary. He becomes, he believes that a certain ideology is the way to advance mutant kind. And then some really bad things start to happen. And he's not, I, I would guess that he has qualms about some of it, but so many people have come to identify with him and he has, you know, have come to depend on him being that way and pushing mutant kind forward that way that it's very hard to just stop. Uh, I don't know if he would, I don't know if he wouldn't, but I think that, you know, the way you present yourself to the world can become the way you are, whether you want it to or not. And, and it can happen without you even realizing it. One day you wake up and you're the person you've been saying you are, even if it was always kind of an act. I don't know that Scott always, I think he started out with a sense of that he would give this a try, you know, that he would see if this was a path that could help considering a lot of other things hadn't worked. And now this is this is who he is. He's got that sweet mask and all the rest of it. It struck me as you were talking about that and the, you know, that you sort of wall yourself into those identities, that he's a character who's largely been defined over the years by roles and by roles that he only somewhat or tangentially chose. I mean, even early on as a superhero, you see him during the Silver Age repeatedly trying to leave the team and Xavier saying, no, this is where you need to be. And him eventually just sort of giving into that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, but that, I don't think that means he's weak-willed either. I think that No, he, but it, he has a very, yeah. very strong sense of obligation to the things that other people need him to be. Need him to be or to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I, I've been there, right? You know, I, I'm in my other non-comics life, I'm an attorney, right? And you, there's a sense of, of obligation to your clients. This is, this is, I'm not, it's not the same thing as what we talk about with Cyclops, but there's certainly a sense of like, you know, you need to go above and beyond and, and sacrifice your, yourself and your own time and everything else in order to make sure that you're giving your clients the best possible service and or whatever, whatever they may need. And particularly because I work in immigration where people's lives are, are directly affected by the amount of time and, and the work that I do. So uh, I, I can see it happening easily. And I, you know, I'm not writing Scott as a beleaguered immigration attorney. Because that'd be weird. <laughs> that would be a different uh, book entirely. Yes, that'd be a different, that'd be like She-Hulk almost. Um, but, but you know, you can see your writing is always informed by your own experience. And I think that the idea of a guy who's willing to just go like put himself second to, to his ideals, to his, his job, quote unquote, you know, he doesn't even stop to let himself think if that's really the right choice for him as a person or his own personal happiness. It's just, that's what he does. And that's who he is. It's strange, but in a way, he almost reminds me of Magneto in that regard. I mean, as much as you never see Magneto doubting himself, except for, you know, at times in the 80s, like they're both people who have found that role, that role that needs to be filled in their eyes. And so they just do it. They don't think too hard about it because somebody needs to do it and somebody needs to do it like right then from what they can tell. Well, Cyclops yes. has this slight advantage that he doesn't revert to genocide every time he panics. 
That's true. I mean, which is, we'll is kind of the, the Magneto thing. Well, 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 not every time. <laughs> Again, there's still a fairly wide window for super villainy there. It's true. But yeah, so I guess one of the recent eras where Scott has seemed maybe a little bit less the way we've been discussing, less of that just falling into roles and falling into roles, was at the very end of Brian Bendis's run in Uncanny X-Men number 600. You know, that big speech he gives to the assembled mutants and the watching media about kind of fixing things, about, you know, trying to bridge that divide. And so with Death of X, it seems to sort of jump into things in medias res with a Terrigen cloud hitting Muir Isle. So I, I guess the question I would have is, is that something that we're going to see really addressed? You know, that brief moment of light that Scott got to have in Uncanny number 600 before things go to hell again. Well, the, the pace of Death of X is, is extremely fast, and it's concerned with a lot of events that spin right out from the opening scene on Muir Island. So we're not going to have a lot of time, at least in this story. There might be a story in the future where we look more of, of kind of the in-between stuff. But this is really from that moment moving forward. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, certainly the big mystery has been less like Scott's change of heart and more just what happened. What is, as we've been calling it from the Calvin and Hobbes uh, strip, what is the noodle incident? What's this this big, often spoken of, but never described mystery? And that seems to be right. basically death of X in a nutshell right there, right? And does yeah. it actually involve noodles? <laughs> there are no noodles, um, <sighs> but it yeah. is, it is, it's, I don't know. I feel, I feel like, I feel about it the same way that I did with Death of Wolverine. Like, Jeff and I have written the whole thing, most of it's drawn. So I know, I know it all looks amazing. It's beautiful. Aaron Cooter is doing incredible work. Jay Lyson inking it. Uh, it just looks great. So I know what happens. I know where it all goes. I know how it all plays out. And I also know that there are plenty of X fans and comic fans in general who will not be happy with it because that's, that's the nature of the, of these stories in the industry. But, and of X fans um, in particular, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Well, of I, anyone I who's heavily very, invested in characters. Yeah, but I, I feel the same way I did with, with Death of Wolverine, that Jeff and I both spent a lot of time making sure that this feels like where he would have gone, what would have happened to him, the, the way that his death would have, you know. It's it's interesting. I mean, I almost, I almost feel like I should come back on after after the miniseries and then we can discuss it again and, and, and uh, go through it because it's kind of complex. Like, we do something in it that is... That is interesting as far as I mean, I think it's interesting as far as the way that the ending works. And it's it hopefully will, um, you know, I, I, I hope it'll make people think about Cyclops in an interesting way, uh, in a way that a lot of the great Cyclops stories have done. Um, you know, that's that's what we're working towards. And certainly, uh, you know, you have to swing for the fences on stuff like this because there's a lot of eyes on it. And, and I, you know, I think that's just the craft, right? You want to you wanna do your best work no matter how big or small a story it is. Right. Well, and also, I mean, so much of the proof of whether a story worked is kind of where things go from there, like the, the storytelling opportunities that are opened up. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm really excited about here almost as much as anything else. Like I was reminded of in Death of Wolverine, I love the various miniseries and series that were part of that. But what I also really loved were what came out of it. I love Laura Kinney, you know, having hung out with the Chinook and learned about heroism and learned about what Logan's legacy really was to her becoming Wolverine herself and having Tom Taylor have the opportunity to turn that into one of the coolest X series we've ever, ever seen. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I I think that the um, and Old Man Logan, too. I mean, and Sorrentino have been doing amazing work on that series as well. Um, So I, I am, you know, I'm very happy with with death of wolverine the way it was received this the stories i got to tell spinning out of it and i'm i'm really happy with death of x and and ivx2 which is a little bit further down the road but not that far i mean it'll be here before we know it so um i just hope everybody likes it and i appreciate you guys giving me the chance to talk about it absolutely so we put out a call for questions on tumblr and twitter and we got a bunch and we've honestly covered 
almost all of them just over the course of the conversation. It was actually pretty impressive how that worked out. Yeah. Yeah. We had a handful written down and we're basically down to one. And this is this. We usually don't answer or respond to who would win in a fight questions on the podcast. But this one stumped us so hard and was so interesting that we decided to stick it in. And so this question is from an anonymous listener on Tumblr who asks, what would happen if Dazzler fought Black Bolt? We figured, you know, (laughs) you being one of the world's leading Black Bolt experts. I am one of the world's leading Black Bolt, which is a very small but elite crew. Um, (laughs) That is a that's a great question. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) My personal theory is that Dazzler would just absorb and absorb the sound and then just explode. And that would be the end of that. So his voice would still basically have the same effect. It would just be channeled through Dazzler. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you they've actually met before in the Dazzler miniseries. So we've seen that happen to a degree. So it's it's out there if you want to take a look uh, as as you know part of my research for all this stuff at to looking at where in humans which in humans have fought which mutants and where they've met up before they they met before so it's worth taking a look oh nice I I was uh-huh. totally unaware sweet so thank you again so much for coming on the show in addition to death of X and and all of that stuff you are writing a whole slew of comics right now can you give listeners a sense of where else they can find you in your work oh absolutely um, so I would I would say. You know, my my Star Wars Marvel work has been has been a great time. I'm currently writing the Poe Dameron ongoing series, but also I did a Lando miniseries and an Obi-Wan and Anakin miniseries. I'm very proud of all of those. The uh, art on Lando is Alex Maleev and Marco Coquetto on on, uh, on Obi-Wan. Uh, and then we have Phil Noto drawing uh, Poe Dameron, which is amazing. The other big series I'm working on right now that I, uh, I it's a it's an honor to work on and, and sort of contribute my chapter to is Daredevil. Um, I'm working uh, primarily with, with Ron Garney and Goran Suzuka on that, um, with some help from some some other uh, amazing artists. Yeah, uh, but that, the, that one is on our on our poll list, and I'm I mean, that it's a gorgeous book. The last few issues you. have especially yeah. been awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the whole serial killer story we're telling now is is um, big. I hope, and it's and Daredevil is leading to. I I tend to write when I when I get a chance to do a big long run like Inhumans or say Swamp Thing over at DC or anything that I get to really you know, stretch my legs for two or three years on, I, I like to write them almost novelistically. So something that happens in issue three, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun issue. It's good. You sort of get the idea of what's going on in it by itself. But then when issue, you know, 16 picks up or, or the payoffs start to happen, you realize why, why I made the choices I made in issue three. Um, and so that's what I'm doing with Daredevils. And the, the, the way we'll go, there's a huge payoff plan for Basically, about a year from now, uh, like next fall, there's this huge thing that we're working towards. And there's going to be a lot of payoffs in between, but but that's that's the idea. So I, I hope if people aren't already reading it, they will jump on because I'm, I'm trying to do some really uh, interesting things with Daredevil. So those, uh, my creator-owned series is called Letter 44, put out by Oni Press. It's this big political science fiction thing about a president who finds out that there are aliens in the asteroid belt and has to figure out how he's going to deal with it. Uh, and then my new upcoming image series is called Curse Words with the wonderful Ryan Brown, um, which uh, will begin in January. And it's about a wizard who pretends he's a good wizard, but he's actually an evil wizard. And he starts casting spells for money in New York City. It is quite a fun, weird series. Oh, man. So you're writing all these things and you're a lawyer? Do you sleep? Yeah. <laughs> well, I try to sleep at night um, when I can. Uh, but I usually have a lot of work to do, which is actually what I'm going to do as soon as we uh, we end our chat. I'm going to get back <laughs> to typing. But but again, thanks so much for having me on. I hugely appreciate it. And I hope you guys will enjoy the rest of Death of X and IVX. And thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, if you want to come back on and do follow up after the series is out, we would love to have you. Absolutely. OK, thanks so much. Talk right. soon, guys. Bye bye. Take care. 
Miles, now that it's back to the two of us, by the time this episode comes out, we're going to have reviewed Death of X number one on the air already in the video reviews. But I feel like we should at least touch on it briefly here and maybe give some sort of non-spoilery notes on the issue itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say that Charles definitely wasn't kidding about this having a fast pace and just jumping right into things. It very much does that, but it's engaging as hell. And some stuff happens. I don't want to go into too much spoilers, but some stuff definitely happens. I had feelings. Yeah, It feels high stakes. And most of all for me, and the the thing that X series live and die by for me is that I really, really like his character voices. He mentioned specifically Scott and Emma and their dynamic. And I think that's one of the strongest points of the issue that we've seen so far. He absolutely nails their voices. Yeah. And Mm. it really does feel like coming home. You know, we haven't seen Scott and Emma in so many months. Not since, well, in one case, during, but mostly before Secret Wars. Yeah, I miss fucked up grown-up Scott a lot. Yeah, well, we get, you know, three more issues after this one with him, and then, in theory, no more. (sighs) The worst part about characters dying in an event is that they disappear from all your back issues, too. That's right, man. You know, in all all the episodes we've recorded about Cyclops, those are going to be, like, gutted. Like, it's going to feel like the Phantom Edit, you know? It's just not going to be the same. Dude, the Phantom Edit was amazing. The Phantom Edit was the best idea ever. Oh, well, so like the opposite of that then. You know what I mean. I do. I have a fairly good idea. But yeah, if you're not picking up this series with the qualifier that we've only seen the first issue at this point, I would recommend it. I don't know for certain where it's going, but from the first issue and from obviously our conversation with Charles, I'm inclined to trust that it's going to give us the resolution that we've been looking for for at this point, like more than a year. And Also, that whether or not it does with that, it's going to be a story worth reading. Mm -hmm. And we'll finally see what the noodle incident is, although I'm pretty sure that the winner of our contest was right in every conceivable way. I think we know that that's still the truth in our hearts. Yep. Meanwhile, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement from a number of fictional characters. And I believe that today... We have with us, in honor of the death of X, the classic Summer's Connected villain, Mr. Sinister. The present day brings me to focus on the threat of the Terrigen Cloud. Does inhuman DNA hold the key to immunity? Are mutants destined to die? Still, my mind wanders to old habits, old hobbies. Scott Summers and Jean Grey held within their very cells the greatest genetic destiny imaginable. A perfect coupling. And yet, I wonder... Could Jason Large and Liz Colombo be superior still? Could their union shatter the future itself? Come, my marauders. I have a mission for you. And with that, I will turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. As your life flashes before your eyes, Nick Bryan, you can't help but focus on the crossroads you faced, the choices you made. You sacrificed everything for Bruce's dream. Love, a life, your very soul. But you still can't help wondering if you're about to face his judgment one final time. And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we return to the X-Men, minus, well, the X-Men. It's like Garfield minus Garfield with only slightly less existential despair. (laughs) 